Shoot, that last song, right? That's such uh, good news. All things in me plead for my rejection, but all things in Christ plead for my acceptance. God is for us. And I am so thankful to know the gospel and know Christ and be here with you to talk about Jesus. Uh, let's uh, just start by asking for his help, and then we'll dive into his word. Father, help. This is big. We're here to listen to you speak. This is your word. And uh, we are here to see Jesus. We want Jesus to be put on display. We want to see your glory. We want to see you lifted up. And Lord, you know our hearts so often are cold, they're distracted. They're uh, filled with worry and fear, and so we come to you like little children today, in Jesus' name, asking that you would supernaturally work in our hearts, that we might listen and see Jesus and be transformed by the gospel, and we pray this in your name, amen. All right, well, it's really a good to finally be here with you. We are uh, so grateful to be at Cornerstone and really, really thankful for the way that you have served us over the past few weeks. It doesn't quite feel right yet because Marta's not here with me. I miss her so much. Uh, she's still in South Africa working on a visa issue uh, for one of our children, and if you would just continue to pray with us about that that would mean a lot to our whole family but I'm looking forward to her getting back hopefully now in a couple weeks it looks like the appointment was delayed and uh, yet she was able to get another appointment for the 19th and so we'll keep going my daughters and kids are doing a great job I'm so thankful for them but I'm looking forward to her getting back and we're both uh, really looking forward to the years ahead of getting to know you and, and the church. I'm, I'm looking forward to what God is going to do here at Cornerstone. This is a privilege and it is a privilege for us to look together at scripture now because this is God's word. And I don't want us to ever get over that. God speaks in his word. We are here ultimately to listen to God speak. And normally, of course, when we get together on Sundays, we're going to be working our way through a book of the Bible. I think we're going to start with Ephesians in a couple of months now because that's kind of a basic theology of the church. Uh, but I thought before we do that, since I'm new here and I'm getting to know you and you're getting to know me, that we could go back to some of the basics and just talk a little about some of the truths that are so core to what being a Christian is and what being a church is really all about. And so I'm going to call this little series Truths to Build a Church On. And we're going to look at some biblical realities that I hope are going to become or are a hallmark of our church here and ministry at Cornerstone. Years from now, if people ask what Cornerstone is about, I hope these are some of the truths that they talk about. But I thought we could start today with a little motivation. Uh, uh, motivation. Today is about motivation. Because if we're going to be a, a faithful church, we're going to need to be a hardworking church. We've got work to do, and we're going to be making a lot of sacrifices. And I know you already have. 
as a church made a lot of sacrifices and we're going to continue to do that and so we're going to need some motivation reminders of the reason we're making all those sacrifices so if you'll take your bible and open with me to the gospel of luke luke chapter 24 we're going to be looking at luke 24 verses 44 through 49 which you might say is jesus's great commission to his disciples in the gospel of luke at some other point earlier actually jesus gave another charge to his disciples that we find in the gospel of matthew but these are jesus's last words to his disciples in the gospel of luke and to understand what Jesus is telling his disciples, you have to remember that Luke is making an argument in this gospel. Obviously, it's not a random, a group of random disconnected sayings. Luke is making an argument throughout his gospel. And one of the main things that Luke is arguing is that God has a plan. He wants you to know God has a plan. In fact, if someone asks you what is the theme of Luke, many would say the theme of Luke, Luke has something to do with God's plan. They, they put it in a little different words, but God's plan. There is a God and he has a plan. History is not random, just going on and on for no reason, headed nowhere. There is a beginning and there is an end and God is in control all along the way, causing everything to work out the way that he wants it to work out to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish in human history. Which could be good or bad news for us, I guess, honestly, if that's all Luke said. Like if his plan was just to condemn the whole world, that would be bad news for us. And yet, of course, we know the good news, according to Luke, why he's writing is that God has stepped in to human history, not simply to condemn, but to save, to redeem, to rescue. Luke is a book of salvation. In fact, you know, if people don't say that Luke's main theme is the plan of God, they often say his main theme is salvation. And that's because he uses the word save and salvation and savior more than any other gospel writer. For example, if you just look at the way he introduces his book, in chapter 1 and 2, he brings in a number of godly people, you know the story, I'm sure, to help you know what his book is going to be about and tell us exactly what God is doing. Like you remember Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verse 47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, what does he prophesy? Chapter 1, verse 69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. And then Simeon as well in chapter 2, verse 30. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke is bringing all these stories together because he wants you to see right at the beginning what makes the gospel exciting is that God has a plan to save and that he has acted to provide that salvation. And that's a big word, salvation, right? We don't want to take that word salvation for granted. And you know, Luke won't let us, which is why he shows us how Mary talks about it. 
She talks about the reversal of the way things are right now. And then Luke tells us how Zechariah thinks about it. He talks about the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises. And later we see when Simeon talks about it, he talks about revelation for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. And even later when John the Baptist talks about it, he talks about forgiveness of sin. And so Luke is saying there is good news. God has a plan and he has acted in human history to accomplish that plan, which is what? To reverse the way things are, to fulfill the Old Testament promises, to provide revelation for the Gentiles and glory for Israel and the forgiveness of sins for sinners. And he's done that through Jesus. Bold print, capital letters, Jesus. And look, this is why I'm a preacher. I hope this is the theme of my ministry. It certainly is the theme of Luke's gospel. You open up Luke, and that's the whole point, Jesus. Luke wants you to know that at a point in time in history, something has happened. The world has changed. And God has done it through Jesus, this Jewish man, Jesus, who lived thousands of years ago. Luke wants you to know he is the key to God's whole plan for solving the problems of the universe. Every single last one of them. And that's big. Luke makes big claims for Jesus, really big claims from the beginning of his gospel, actually. I mean, you remember how the angel of the Lord introduces Jesus to the shepherds in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you work your way through Luke and you see that's Luke's message. We've got good news for all the people. God has acted to provide salvation salvation and he's done it through Jesus. He's the Christ, the one who fulfills all the Old Testament promises. He's the Savior, the one who's going to reverse the curse and provide the forgiveness of sins. And he's the Lord, the one God is setting up as king of the universe. That is Luke's message. And that's ours. That's why I'm excited to be here at Cornerstone, because we've got a big message as a church. Obviously, we look around and we all know the world has got some serious problems and we're not here as a church to solve all the problems of the universe through our efforts. We can't do that. But we know who can, we know who will, and we are the one institution on the planet given the privilege of proclaiming the good news of what God has done through Jesus. And look, here's the thing, you know that. But Luke doesn't only want you to know that as information. He wants you to understand what that means and to believe it. If his theme is God has a plan to save that he's accomplishing through Jesus, his goal, Luke, his purpose is to get you to believe it and to be absolutely 100% certain about it, which is key really for us as a church. If we're going to make sacrifices to be the kind of church God wants us to be, we know the plan. You know the plan, I'm guessing. But just knowing the plan doesn't do you much good unless you believe it and are sure about it, which is kind of the hard part, actually, looking at this world right now the way it is all these years later 
after Jesus came and died because it's a mess. And it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere good. And so if we're going to go out there with the gospel and tell everyone to put all their hope in what God's done through Jesus, we need to know as a church why we can be sure that God really has acted through Jesus and that God's really going to act through Jesus. And that's what we're asking Luke as the gospel ends, Luke 24. Why should we be sure God has really provided salvation and is really going to provide this great salvation through Jesus when the world looks the way it does right now? What reasons do we have for confidence? I want to give you three. Three reasons as we look at Luke 24, verses 44 through 49 today. I want to give you three reasons you can be confident that God has acted to provide salvation through Jesus so that you will be motivated to go out and proclaim the gospel and make great sacrifices to get the gospel out. And the third reason really is the key. As we look at this text, they're all important, but in terms of this text, Luke 24, 44 through 49, the third is really the main point. So you're going to have to work to follow me now. This is going to be a long sermon. I know, too long. But the first two reasons are kind of just to set you up, honestly, so that you can feel the impact of the third. So stick with me, because that's really the main point of the text. But first, you can be confident in spite of how you feel things look, because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is reason for confidence. And of course, that's the context for these verses. We're in Luke 24, and Luke 24 comes after Luke 23, where we read how Jesus died on the cross. And so as we start this chapter, usually we would have read the whole book, and so we would know how Jesus has made all kinds of claims about himself in the first 22 chapters. But the question, reading chapter 23, is why would we ever believe those claims when he died the way he did? And one part of Luke's answer is chapter 24, the resurrection. He died, but he didn't stay dead, Jesus. And you know, that's a pretty big reason for being certain. I always say if someone physically rises from the dead, believe them. Usually, I don't think it makes much sense to argue with someone who has risen from the dead. Even if what he's saying sounds impossible, because death looks pretty impossible, you know? And if someone says, I'm going to defeat death, and then they actually defeat death, we should probably believe all the other claims they made, which of course is why people have to fight so hard against the resurrection, unbelievers. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything. It just shuts down so many questions. But, 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 no, Jesus rose from the dead. And so there have been all kinds of crazy things people have said about the resurrection to get people to doubt it from the very beginning. But if you look at what Luke actually says happened after Jesus died, one thing you know for sure is that Jesus' followers were not making this up. For one thing, they didn't even believe it themselves at first. I mean, they didn't even believe the resurrection was going to happen before it happened, so this wasn't an idea that they had in their minds, like maybe this could happen. They were not expecting a resurrection to the point where they didn't even think the resurrection happened after it happened either. 
If you look at the beginning of Luke 24, you see for them to even consider the possibility of a resurrection, God has to send angels to these women to tell them why Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. The women go to the tomb and they find Jesus' body isn't there. And so they are confused and they don't think to themselves, oh, of course he must have risen from the dead. No, instead they're like, what happened? Where is he? And they don't have a clue what's going on until the angels explain. And even then, when they go back and tell the others, what do they say? The apostles and the other disciples. Verse 11, Luke 24. Do they say, oh, I guess that makes sense. That must be what happened. We were kind of thinking he might rise from the dead. No, they say the opposite. They say nonsense. These words seem to them an idle tale. And some of them even start going back to their own homes afterwards. You remember the road to Emmaus in verses 13 and following? And then even later when Jesus showed up and, and talked to them as they were on their way in verses 15 and 16, they're literally staring Jesus in the face and not recognizing them. And they end up trying to lecture Jesus on why Jesus failed when he was standing there right in front of them. Which means if anyone thinks the disciples maybe came up with this idea of the resurrection, they totally did not come up with this. They didn't believe it at first. And you know, even when they did believe it, they didn't understand the significance. It's funny, you read this chapter, after Jesus appeared to Peter and the other disciples, they're all finally starting to, to believe maybe that Jesus had risen from the dead. But when Jesus showed up to them, you know how they responded? This is verse 37. Maybe you even remember. They were scared because they thought he was a ghost. I mean, it took the disciples a long time to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And when they did, they didn't even understand what it meant for Jesus to be risen from the dead. They thought he was a ghost. They didn't understand the physicality of the resurrection. And so I'm saying if God had just left Jesus' followers to themselves, they would not have believed or understood the significance of the gospel, which means we never would have heard the gospel. For us to have heard the gospel, for us to be here today, Jesus had to act. And that's one reason why we have confidence and are excited about taking the gospel out, because Jesus didn't just make claims. He proved those claims were true. He rose from the dead. And not only that, the reason we know he rose from the dead and understand what it means is because after he rose, he went to work, which is why there's a verse 15 and following. Jesus's commitment to accomplishing God's plan didn't end with his death, and it didn't actually even end with his resurrection. We serve a living Savior, and that living Savior is 100% committed to finishing what he started. So that's first why we're confident, the context for this passage. The Great Commission in Luke is the resurrection. We serve a, a living Savior. Second, a second reason for confidence, and remember, we're just trying to get to the third because that's really the point of this text. The first two are just to set you up. First, the resurrection. Then second, the birth of the church. Jesus rose from the dead, and then the apostles went out and preached the gospel, and the church was born. The resurrection and the birth of the church. Those are two reasons for confidence as we look to the future. And the resurrection, of course, is obvious why it gives us confidence. Because it seemed impossible. And yet it happened. But if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, you know what else seems impossible? Almost as impossible as the resurrection. 
the apostles. The apostles going out and preaching the gospel to Gentiles after Jesus died seems pretty impossible as well. They're both up there, actually, in terms of impossibility. It's kind of funny reading about the, gospel, the apostles throughout the gospel of Luke because they're just so clueless through the whole thing. The first time we meet Simon Peter in Luke, literally the very first words we hear from his mouth, he's telling Jesus he doesn't think Jesus' idea is going to work. That's not a good start. And that's kind of a sign how it's going to go the rest of the gospel. You know, pretty much whenever Jesus tells the apostles what's going to happen with him dying, the next thing we read in Luke is what? They did not understand. Or they argued with one another about which one of them was the greatest. And that's all the way up to Jesus dying on the cross. It doesn't get any better the closer they get. In spite of how clear and how plain Jesus is, they cannot get their minds around what Jesus is saying. And you know, they're definitely not thinking about the nations. <laughs> and yet here in Luke 24, verses 44 through 49, what is Jesus calling them to do? Look at it. Then he said to them, and see if you can see it. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And I tried to bold print witnesses because that's what Jesus is calling on the apostles to be. And that's actually another one of those big words in the Bible, witness, witnesses. In fact, there's a, a sense in which, from the very beginning of the Bible, God's been looking for a witness. He's been looking for a people who will come to see him for who he is and will take what they've experienced out to the world and testify about who God is and how God saves. And actually, if you think about it, that really was the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament. They were a kingdom of priests, and that means they were called to represent God to the world. And even if you read the book of Exodus, that's why he saved them the way he did and gave them the law he gave them. And the prophets say the same thing later. If you look at Isaiah, listen to the way God talks about Israel in Isaiah 43, verse 9. He says, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. And he's talking about the world there in that verse. And he says, whom among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it's true. And so it's like God's calling on the nations to bear witness to their idols. And then he says to Israel, Isaiah 43.10, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. And so they're supposed to go out to the world, Israel, and witness to the fact that there's only one God and there's only one salvation. And yet after years and years and years and all these amazing experiences, they totally fail Israel. We read the Old Testament, they fail, and finally God says, You, it's like you're a deaf and blind. 
witness. You're a deaf and blind witness, Israel. And here's why I'm bringing that all up. I bring that up because for most of the Gospel of Luke, it looks like the apostles are going to end up like that as well, just like Israel, deaf and blind. Jesus tells them he's going to be crucified. It's like they can't hear him as they argue about which one of them is the greatest and blind. Luke 24, here Jesus rose from the dead and yet what happens in this chapter? They can't even see him when he's standing right in front of them. And yet I'm saying here in this passage, Jesus is calling the disciples, these disciples, to be his witnesses. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And so he's giving them the responsibility of taking the good news of his death and resurrection out to the entire world. And so if you're tracking with me, with Luke, I think, you hear that and you're asking what? You're asking how? Is that going to happen? How is that going to happen with these deaf and blind witnesses? In fact, let me boil it down so we're all tracking. What does Jesus say is supposed to happen in verses 46 and 47 exactly? He summarizes God's plan in three stages. First, thus it's written, he says, that the Christ should suffer. That's one. And on the third day, rise from the dead. That's two. But here's the third, and this is the one that hadn't happened yet in Luke 24. He says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's God's plan. It's the third stage, and it's essential if we're going to be saved. It's not enough for Jesus to die and rise again if we're going to be saved. There's still another step to the whole thing. The apostles have to go out and speak for him. They're to be his witnesses. And they are to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name. Which is a big phrase as well. It's like an Old Testament way of speaking. They were to be like Jesus' prophets. Jesus is speaking like he's God here. And he's sending the apostles out as his prophets to explain the significance of the cross on his behalf. And hold out the promise of forgiveness and call on people to repent. And he's sending them to do that not just to the Jewish people, he says, but to all nations. You see that in verse 47, right? And I'm saying up to this point, looking at God's plan and reading the Gospel of Luke, you don't have many reasons for thinking these apostles are going to be able to do that any better than Israel did. It sounds impossible. They've been deaf and blind. How are these deaf and blind apostles going to be able to serve as Jesus' witnesses to the nations, his prophets? If you look down here at Luke 24, he tells us how. That's the thing. He says, first in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the same phrasing as Luke uses earlier to describe the blind eyes of those men on the road to Emmaus being opened to see Jesus. Jesus has to act, he's saying, in their hearts to cure them of spiritual blindness, and he does. And then second, verse 49, how's it going to happen? He makes a promise after describing their mission. He says, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. And you can read more of what he says in Acts 1, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And listen, this is why I'm telling you all this because that happened that happened that's why we're here now 
And I know it doesn't seem surprising to us. We're like, of course there's a church, and of course there are all these Gentiles in the church. But at that point in time, in Luke 24, when Jesus said that, it would have seemed as impossible as him rising from the dead. And yet, if you go on from Luke 24 and read what comes next in the book of Acts, that whole book is a testimony that Jesus kept his promise. Maybe you remember the first chapter, how they're waiting in Jerusalem, the apostles, and they actually ask God to help them choose another apostle. Why? Do you remember the reason they said? Because they need another witness to the resurrection, they say. They know what they're supposed to do. They need another witness. And then after that, once they have that witness, comes the second chapter. And what happens? There, Luke says, Holy Spirit, power. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result is they become what? These amazing witnesses, Acts 2.22, they stand before this huge crowd and preach this amazing, amazing message. And Peter concludes, and this is Peter, the one who ran away from Jesus when he was dying, the one who betrayed him to a little girl, the one who saw the empty tomb and was confused. It's only 40 days later now, and yet Peter is standing before this huge crowd and he says, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we're witnesses, witnesses, we're witnesses to the death, most of them. And for a while, they're just witnesses to the Jews. You read Acts, they kind of get stuck in Jerusalem. But of course, Jesus is alive, and he's not done working. And so he sends all the apostles out. He even chooses Paul to be an apostle, and he gives him a message and sends Paul to be his witness to the Gentiles. And by the end of Acts, how does Acts end? Paul's not in Jerusalem any longer, is he? You know where he is? He's in Rome, which is the capital of the wor world, you might say. And what's he saying? Listen to this, Acts 28, verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And again, what I'm saying is it happened. It all happened. The resurrection, when Jesus first said it, seemed impossible. Then it happened. Empty tomb. And the birth of the church and the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Impossible in Luke 24. But you open up Acts. It happened. Look around. Look around. It happened. Here we are. Look at us. We're here. So why should we be confident in spite of how things look? You tell me. I mean, take a moment. Go back in time. What would you tell the apostles if you were there back then, that day, as they were looking at Jesus risen from the dead before the birth of the church? And someone asked, maybe, why should we be confident? You would say, because Jesus rose from the dead. He's kept his promise. Look at him. You might not understand everything God's doing, but Jesus rose from the dead. Look at him. And what can I tell you as we're looking around at the church here and all over the world? The gospel has been proclaimed to the nations. I mean, there's more to do, obviously, but it really has. So why should we be confident? They had an empty tomb. What do we have? We have the church. We have the church. It happened. Look around and you know that. 
And here's the third reason for confidence, and this is key, really, to the whole thing, because it didn't just happen, the resurrection and the birth of the church. There's something more, and this is what Jesus really wants you to see. In this text, Luke 24, it happened the way God in Scripture said it would happen. Three reasons for confidence. The resurrection, the birth of the church, the Scripture. That's the third reason, and that's where we've been trying to get. I mean, look at how Jesus puts it, verse 44 again. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And what's that mean? These are my words. What are his words? What happened? The suffering, the cross, the resurrection. These are my words. These things. What happened is what I said would happen. And what did I say would happen? Look at the end of verse 44. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, it's all there in the scripture, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's Jesus' way of summarizing the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I wasn't making all this up. What I said would happen is what God already said would happen. Look, what gives us confidence is not just that Jesus came and died and rose again and did all this stuff. What gives us confidence about God's plan is that God, in every part of the Old Testament, already told us and explained to us what he was going to do through Jesus before he did it. And then, of course, Jesus, who had been studying the scriptures, came and explained to his disciples what God in scripture said had to happen. These are my words that I spoke to you, he says. And then it happened. And again, why did it happen the way it did? It was in the Old Testament. And because it was in the Old Testament, it had to be fulfilled. You see that word must at the end of verse 44. Must be fulfilled. The point is what God says in scripture has to happen, has to happen. And that's why Jesus was so confident throughout the gospel. That's why he set his face to Jerusalem. That's why he didn't protest his death. That's why he was able to die the way he did, in faith, crying out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, actually quoting an Old Testament psalm, because he knew what was coming next. And one reason he knew what was coming next was because he believed God when he spoke. And so should we. We should believe God when we look at scripture and see what it tells us about what God is going to do through Jesus in the future. And we look at the world the way it is right now. We're tempted to wonder, can he really do it? And when we're tempted to wonder, you know what we need to do? What do you need to do? You need to look back at what happened at the cross because that was pretty confusing for the disciples as well when it was happening. But should it have been? No, it, it really shouldn't have been. Verse 25, Jesus calls them foolish ones. Why? Because Jesus said what was going to happen, and what Jesus said was going to happen was just what God already said was going to happen before it happened. And so what's the disciples' problem, really? It was verse 45. Their problem wasn't that God hadn't told them what was going to happen. And their problem wasn't that their circumstances were so confusing. Not really. Their problem was their minds were closed to what the scripture was saying. Luke says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. They were looking at their Bibles, but they couldn't see what God was actually saying until Jesus supernaturally opened their minds. And listen, why am I going on and on? I'm going on and on because if you want certainty, you can have it. 
You can have it. We can be certain. We need to be certain. We can be certain in spite of how things look. How? Because God has a plan, and God's told us that plan. I mean, he's laid out how he's accomplishing that plan through Jesus. And so what do you need to do if things seem a little unsettled right now? What you need to do is go back to God's word and ask God once again to open up your minds to understand scripture so that you can see the glory of Jesus and the glory and beauty of what he is going to accomplish through him because the plan is there and it's going to be fulfilled. It has to be. It, it must be fulfilled. And if you want a little proof of that, a final proof for encouragement, verse 46, Jesus says, let's look back at the first part of the plan. Thus it's written that Christ should suffer. And you know, a lot of people didn't understand that, that Christ would suffer. But it's there in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12:10, Zechariah 13:17, Daniel 9:24 through 26, and there's more. But those are some of the passages that describe the suffering of the Messiah before it happened. And I know people were confused. How could the Messiah suffer? What's happening here? But it was there. That's the point. The Old Testament said it would happen. And then you know what? It happened just the way God said it would happen. Like his resurrection as well, the second stage in the plan. Jesus says, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And if you want to know where the Old Testament talks about the resurrection, a good place to look is the book of Acts. Because in Acts, Luke re records the apostles preaching and they're preaching, I think, some of what Jesus taught them in Luke 24. So, for example, Acts 2.25, Peter's talking about the resurrection and says, For David says concerning him, and he's quoting Psalm 16.10 and 11, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And corruption is talking about the decay of death. And that's a promise of the resurrection. And Paul adds to those. Psalm 2, verse 7. Isaiah 55, 3. Then there's Isaiah 25, 8. Hosea 13, 14. And even God's promise to David about a descendant who would rule forever assumes a resurrection, right? Because how can one of us rule forever unless death is defeated? And so, sure, when Jesus is being buried, it was confusing. And the disciples weren't expecting a resurrection. But it was there. If they had been reading the Old Testament carefully, they should have been expecting it because God said it would happen. And then you know what? It happened. And it happened on the very day you should have expected, actually. You notice how Jesus says, third day, on the third day, rise from the dead. And that's something he stresses several times throughout Luke. And Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians too. It's amazing. God not only said the Messiah was going to die, he pointed to, and he did not only said the Messiah was going to die and rise again, he pointed to the very day on which he would rise again. And if you're wondering where, it's not so much that the Old Testament says Jesus is going to rise on the third day straight out. It's more that the Old Testament gives a pattern. So if you read the Old Testament, you find that God often acts in a miraculous way to rescue his people. And even more specifically, to rescue the chosen seed on the third day. Like Isaac, when Abraham was supposed to sacrifice him and God intervened, Genesis makes sure to point out the beloved son was offered and rescued on the third day. Or Israel, after God rescued Israel from Egypt, he came down on a mountain to make a covenant with them. Exodus says, on the third day. Big things happen on the third day. Or the Davidic king, King Hezekiah was supposed to die, and so he cried out to God, and God sent Isaiah to tell him that his prayer had been heard, and that he would be raised up, and that he would not die but live. And you know what Isaiah told him? 
he told him he would go to the temple on the third day. And probably the most classic example of all of them is Hosea, where God told Israel that they were going to be exiled and they, they would basically be killed as a nation. And yet Hosea goes on and says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. And in the Old Testament, it continues. You know what day Esther went before the king to plead for the life of Israel? The third day. Or Jonah, he was swallowed up by a great fish and he cried out to God and the fish spit him out on the dry land on, wait for it, the third day. And there's more. But what I'm wanting you to see is while the apostles were kind of confused about what was happening to Jesus as it was happening, they didn't need to be. They could have been certain, confident, because what happened is what God already said would happen in the Old Testament, that the Christ would suffer and that he would rise from the dead. And then it happened, just like the birth of the church as well. In Luke 24, the third thing Jesus says the Old Testament promised. That repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And again, we could work just like we did with the suffering of the Messiah and the resurrection of Jesus to see where that's promised in the Old Testament. And if you want help, again, you can read the book of Acts or Paul's writings because this is the kind of question they're answering. And Paul takes us to places like Genesis 12 and James and Acts takes us to the book of Amos. But the point is, it's there, God's plan. God has a plan and he's told us that plan. And why can we be confident? We really have reasons to be confident. We can be confident because we look at stage one. How God says this has to happen and how people are confused before it happens. But then it happens. And then we look at stage two and how God says this has to happen and people think it's impossible before it happens, but then it happens. And now we see here in stage three in God's salvation plan and we're here and it looks just as impossible and the apostles going out and yet guess what? It happened just the way God said it would happen. And, you know, we have even more than that, actually, because in verse 49, Jesus explains, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And once again, he's explaining how these prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the future, just like he did before he went to the cross. And when we open up the book of Acts, you know what? It happened just the way Jesus said it would happen, which tells us what? What difference does that make for us at Cornerstone? If God has a plan for salvation in Jesus, and if we see the way he describes that plan in the Bible, and if we open up the gospel and we see stage one happens, and then we see stage two happens, and then we see stage three happens, just the way he said it would, what should we think about the rest of his promises? What should we think about the other stages that we might not see fulfilled yet? They're going to happen just the way he says they'll happen. Look, church, we've been given a great mission by Jesus, and it's going to take work, and it's going to take sacrifice, I'm sure. We need motivation. Why should we work? God has a plan. We're part of God's plan. And how can we be confident? Why should we be confident that God can accomplish that plan when we look at the world the way it is? One, Jesus rose from the dead and his resurrection proves his claims are true and reminds us we serve a living Savior. He's alive and he's working for the good of his church. And two, 
We know that because of the fact that there even is a church. The fact that there is a church proves he does what he says he'll do. And three, we can be confident, so confident, because it's all here in Scripture. It's history before it happens. We're told what is going to happen before it happens. And we have the empty tomb and we have the birth of the church as these huge evidences that God always keeps his word. And so if we're not confident, you know what the problem is? The problem's ultimately not God. The problem's us. And what's the answer? Go to Jesus. Will you go to Jesus? This is a time for a confident, certain church. The apostles had their mission. We have ours. This is our moment to live all out for Christ. And so if you're not confident, will you go to Jesus? How do you do that? You go to Jesus by going back to Jesus' word and asking him to open your heart so that you can see how he's accomplishing God's plan of salvation that's described there. This is like a glass, the gospel, through which we can see Jesus. We go to the gospel and to his word, not just to see ourselves or to get some nice ideas for living a better life, but to see God's plan and to see Jesus, and you pray. And then second, you start working to learn the story of Jesus in the Bible and reminding yourself of the story of Jesus in the Bible. In the gospel, God has revealed something that was hidden for ages and generations. It was there in the Old Testament, but people didn't see it the way that we're able to see it. And we have Paul and this revelation that's able, that God uses to explain more clearly what he's doing through Jesus. We have such a privilege, I'm saying. And so we want to spend our lives diving in to the gospel and then three you stop making excuses and you believe it and I'm praying God will help us not just to know the gospel but to believe it and to be certain about it because I'm convinced if we're going to be faithful and fruitful and motivated to give our lives for the mission that God's called us to as a church we need a deep conviction a deep core conviction that God has a plan to save sinners through Jesus and actually to reverse the curse and to establish his kingdom and on and on we could go and he's given us as a church the great privilege and responsibility to glorify him by taking that message out to a world that desperately needs it let's pray thank you Lord <laughs> we pray that over the years you'll put Jesus on display here and that the theme of this church will be Jesus and what God has accomplished through Jesus and that you will help us not just to to know some facts about the gospel but to see the glory of Jesus in the gospel and that you will make us a church that is characterized by great faith and great certainty and and a deep assurance that God you are God who always keeps your promises we ask this in Jesus your name amen